As you settle in for our last Sunday school class in this series, can you believe it? And you're like, yes, I thought it was over three weeks ago. No, it's, it's over today. We're going to wrap it up. It's been a great series, a great book for this, and hopefully we'll be able to round it out, close it out, and understand the real theme of all of this. And I'll just tell you right away what that is. It's always the gospel. It's always the gospel. So this is not going to be a complicated lesson today, but hopefully one that rejuvenates you, encourages you, inspires you, gives you the passion that we all had at one time, those of us who were in Christ, and hopefully you still have it, but to reignite that fire because that is what we are called to do. So let me start with prayer and then we'll jump right into it. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you that we have your word. Uh, As Mark and I were just discussing, uh, opinions come and go our, our bents and our leanings come and go, but your word is always true and we can count on it. You're such a good God that would not hide that from us, and you give us the certainty of, uh, of what your will is, the certainty of what the future looks like, and the certainty of how you intend for us to live. And so we, we confidently walk in that. So I thank you for that opportunity to be ambassadors of that word and that truth. And I pray that this morning as we look at your word and we understand our reaction to the world, that we remind ourselves that the world is not our enemy. The world is is captivated by the enemy. The world is blinded by the enemy. But your desire is for all men to come to a saving faith. Your desire is for repentance. And we understand that that should be our desire too. So I pray that as we look into your word today that... Uh, we see that, that we see clearly what our, our duty here on earth is, and it's to give you praise and honor, to please you, and to proclaim your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so last week, we're going to, quick review, last week we talked about this idea of the vilification and why the world is so upset and what the, what the, um, what the, the, the animosity is and what the issue is, and I just prayed about it a little bit. The issue is sin. The issue will always be sin. I had a large section in this in uh, my uh, uh, slides this week that I took out the issue of sin, that it's not a skin issue, it's not a social issue, it's not some uh, uh, economic issue, it's always a sin issue. And I, I've taken it out for the sake of time, but I, I pray that we all understand that this is the problem in our world today and where the animosity lies And we talked last week, kind of ended with the idea that we have got to hold strong to God's truth and not bend to the whims of culture, whatever they may be. And so that's kind of where we ended last week. But this week we're going to start with, well, what is our response to the vilification, to to the attacks? What should the Christian response be? What's the Christ-like, word-based response to that vilification? And then transitioning into our proper perspective as we go into this last chapter, which he uses, uh, uh, Lutzer uses uh, a phrase that we find to the church, uh, to the letter in, in, uh, to the church of Sardis in Revelation 3, to strengthen what remains. And we'll just talk about that for just a moment, but that will lead us into this concept of what we must do. And I've given it away. We've got to preach the gospel all of it, you're going to think, well, what do you mean? I'll let you know what I mean by that. All of it. It's not just some of it, all of it. So as we get into this today, I think the idea here is we're going to jump right into what's our response to vilification. If you were with us last week, we, know, we understood that, hey, we're going to stand strong on what's true, 
but we're going to be vilified for it. We're going to be hated for it. And Jesus said, don't be surprised at this because you're not greater than me and I'm your master. So this is something we should be expecting. But I've kind of broken this down into some, some just encouragement as to what our response should be, but why it should be this, why these responses should be as they are. And first, the first thing I, I kind of came to, to, to this understanding based on Matthew 5 is you should consider yourself blessed if this happens. That's a perspective that we've got to have. So you'll hear me say this often, the eternal versus the temporal perspective. That should always be the Christian's view is the eternal perspective. This is not the world's perspective that it's a blessing to have people attack you verbally. But for the Christian, it is. Uh, Now, we want to be careful about what that is. I've said this before, too. We don't want them to vilify us because we're being a jerk. But they can vilify us if when we proclaim the truth, they don't like hearing the truth. Here's what Jesus says here. Blessed are you, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. You're very familiar with it. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, and notice what it is, on my account, Jesus' account, because in his name you're proclaiming his truth. You're blessed if that happens, and he says, well, you should rejoice and be glad. If that's the case, you consider yourself blessed, for your reward is great in heaven. And I know you're fast-forwarding in your mind because that's exactly what the, the apostles did, right? When they took a beating for Jesus through Acts 4 and Acts 5, they repeatedly kept doing what the the Jewish leadership didn't want them to do, which is proclaim the gospel, and they were thrilled that they got to take a beating for Jesus. Now, that's a physical beating, but in this situation, we're talking about being reviled, that somebody is attacking you and you should rejoice in that. It's perspective, and that's not an easy perspective because nobody feels comfortable in that place. Yet that's exactly where Christ wants us to be. Rejoice and be glad because we understand the eternal perspective. Notice, the reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not a new phenomenon. Here's the next one. We have a better possession. There's something greater. This is, again, the eternal perspective. Hebrews chapter 10. Why don't you turn there for me because this is a longer passage. And I'm going to bring it up on the screen, but it's easier to see in your your Bibles. The other... uh, advantage of having you have your Bibles out is some of you have the NASB. Occasionally I'll use NASB, occasionally I'll use ESV, and we can see that comparison there. And up here I have the ESV today. And I'll bring it up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10. This incredible passage from Hebrews 10 through 11 and 12, and that is, as this builds on the Christian life, and certainly talking about the, the character and divinity of Christ, but then our fellow believers who have gone before, and this is again one of these types of passages that is, is trying to rally the troops. Here's what the author of Hebrews says to the believer who may be in a situation where they're being reviled. Here's what it says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, came to a saving faith in Christ, you understood the truth, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you may have been exposed to reproach. You may have been ridiculed, reviled. Maybe you knew somebody who, maybe you're partnering with somebody. Remember, that's the believer's plight. We're here in this together. If, if, if your brother or sister in Christ is feeling pain, you ought to feel pain with them as well, especially if they're feeling it for the name of Jesus. And it says, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. 
wow, that's an interesting concept. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. He's having them think back on that, that first passion, that first love that they once had. Remember this, he's trying to tell them to do, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So this is talking about stuff being taken from you, but this could be your pride, it could be your ego, it could be friendships and relationships, but because of the name of Jesus and the truth that we proclaim, we're going to have to have a better eternal perspective. We have a better possession. And then notice how this continues on, verse 35. Therefore, because of what we just read, knowing, remembering what maybe you've gone through, and maybe you haven't gone through any of this. Maybe you're not like this particular group of Christians that he's writing to, but you know of those who have. It's still the same idea because this is still the Christian life. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. And the confidence, remember, is in Christ. It's not in your stuff. It's not in your, it's not in your relationships, and it's not in who you are. It's in who he is which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's not losing salvation. That is continuing to pursue the prize, continuing to do the work of an evangelist, the endurance that is needed because of the reviling, because of the attacks, remembering we have a better possession. There's something more to come. Here's the next one. We bless, we endure, and then it says we entreat. And I don't know if you can see this one up here, but I, I think you can stay where you're at. 1 Corinthians 4, here's what we see Paul saying to the church in Corinth. And by the way, this is speaking of the life of the apostles, but the life of a servant of the Lord. Okay, we, we can just translate that to this because we're, none of us are apostles. But he's talking about his plight as a servant of the Lord and as a called apostle to the Gentiles, but generally speaking of all the apostles who were called to this, and his and, and previously talks about him being kind of the least of the apostles, but humbling himself. But look at what it says in verse eleven. It says this: To the present hour, we hunger and thirst; we are poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We treat kindly. That's what entreat means. We react with kindness. We react with gentleness, as we'll see later on in, in our lesson today. We react by giving them hope. We, we react without passion and, 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 uh, and selfish desire bubbling up into our hearts, which tends to happen when you get attacked. You want to attack back. That's not what we do. We treat those who, who attack us with kindness. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. Now, you may not like to embrace that, but that's exactly kind of where we sit, isn't it? If we're comparing ourselves to the Lord, we certainly are the scum of the world. But what does the world look at you as? Are you okay with them looking down upon you because of what you believe and what you hold to? Or does it matter more to you what the world thinks of you? Because we do have a tendency in, in modern-day Christianity, and I pray it's no one here, to desire to have the... The, uh, the applause of the world rather than the applause of the Lord. And that's a dangerous place to be in. So do you mind being considered the scum of the world? The refuse of all things? Strong words that he uses here. Does that bother you? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. This is an encouragement. That this is what we do when we're reviled. So this is the response, remember, of being attacked verbally or otherwise. Here's the next one. It's our calling to entrust ourselves to our judge. 
So we don't want to look at the world and say, okay, what do they think of me? How are they judging me? That's irrelevant. It's truly irrelevant because as we know what Christ said, what can man do? They can kill the body, but they can't do anything with the soul. You need to fear the one who can kill both the body and send the soul to hell, speaking of himself. Here's what we see in 1 Peter. Hopefully you can see that. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For to this you have been called. To this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You've been called to this. It's not easy to live for Jesus in our world today. It wasn't 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this to believers then. It wasn't easy. It's never been real popular to follow this book. It really hasn't. It can be popular to follow the book when you kind of make it your own version of the book. There's a lot of quote-unquote Christians that there can be a popular version of Christianity, but true Christianity has always been a lightning rod. It really has. It's been a divider. Remember Christ's words. He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. We started last week with that. So back to the text. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is Christ's example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Look at what it says. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And of course, we know authority has been given to this exact Savior who we're to emulate, to walk in. Remember what Christian means, little Christ. You're to emulate him. And if he didn't revile, I just think, just to pause on this for a second, it's almost impossible for us to conceive having the power of the universe at your fingertips. Just put yourself in that situation. That's what Jesus was. That's what he could do. Remember what he tells Peter. Don't you think I could bring legions of angels here? I don't need your sword. Just imagine having that power being reviled and mocked and spit upon, your beard pulled out. For those of you with beards, that would hurt. Imagine that, being hung on a cross with no sin in your life, and your reaction is love. Would that be yours? Would your reaction be forgiveness? I don't think so. I don't think so. If you want to talk about the power that Christ has, one of the greatest powers he ever displayed was his self-control because he loved you so much. If he had done that, if he had come off the cross, if he had done what they deserved, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today worshiping him. We would be dead in our trespasses, lost in our sins, and we would still be headed for hell. Just think about the control he had. And he is telling us you can do that too. When reviled, you don't need to revile in return. And you think, ah, yeah, but that's Christ. Now, we know the story of Stephen, don't we? Didn't he mimic his, his, Christ's words? When he was being stoned to death, I think we can have confidence that the Holy Spirit's going to empower us to be able to react the same way. And we're not even talking about physical pain here. We're talking about being reviled. We're talking about somebody coming at us with words and not liking us. And it's so funny, in 2022, uh, we, we feel like getting canceled or, or somebody coming after us verbally is the worst thing in the world. That's, that's got to be our comfort place. That's got to be where we're at because we entrust ourselves to him. He's the one we need to concern ourselves with. Turn to Acts chapter 18. I love this passage for this very purpose. It's, a, it's full and loaded with such good doctrine, but it's a great example of this very thing. So turn to Acts chapter 18. As you go there, I'm going to kind of set this up for us. 
This is Paul coming out of Athens, if you recall. And he goes here alone. And as you turn there, he's going to stay with some people that he's got something in common with because they're all tent makers, which is just kind of an interesting side story we're not going to get into today. But as you pick this up, Acts chapter 18, this is around 52 AD. So just to give you an idea of the timeline, here's what it says. 18 verse 1. After this, so he's left Athens. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for worked for they uh, were tent makers by trade and he reasoned in the synagogues every sabbath and tried to persuade jews and greeks now we don't get into the detail of exactly what that looks like but we know what it looks like he was teaching them truth from the old testament proving that jesus was the christ from the old testament i don't have to ask you but if this was a small class i would ask you do you think that the message went over real well with all the jews the answer is no They certainly reviled him. They certainly came after him. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see this happen as this progresses. But this is a fascinating account of what Paul does and his reaction and God's reaction to it. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived, remember he came alone from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. He was just proclaiming God's truth, testifying to the Jews that, that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed and reviled him. And he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. By the way, this is the pattern we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts with Pastor. He starts with the Jews. They usually reject it. There's a few that, you remember, Christ has his everywhere. There's a few that will accept it, and then he moves on to the Gentiles. And aren't we glad that he did? Here we sit, a bunch of Gentiles on the other side of the world. Back to the text. So he's moving on to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. This is all going to be important as we go through this. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. This is a Gentile, this is a Roman. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Uh, uh, Excuse me, Titus Justus is is the Roman here. And believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm or, or you to harm you. For I, am, I have many in this city who are my people. I re- messed that up, so let me read that again in verse 10. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I just need to break this down here for a second before I go to the slide that actually breaks this down. If we look at this passage here, there's something we've got to assume about Paul. Paul here must have been struggling with the ridicule because the Lord comes to him and encourages him directly. Now you may be saying to yourself, why won't the Lord come and speak to me? And I'm going to say to you, open up your Bible and he will. That's exactly what happens every day to me. If I'm struggling with something, if I'm having a rough day, if I've just, it's just not right, I, I know how to make it right. And you know how to make it right. I, I know exactly what's going to happen. When I open up this book, I will be convicted. It will penetrate right to my core. I know it and you know it. 
But what we see here is Paul apparently struggling. The ridicule, the reviling was probably getting to him. Think about this, because you feel it. You know this is true. And you know it contains salvation to save people. You know that the gospel is absolute good news. You know it. You know what you were saved from. You know what you now have in store for you. And you wish that for everyone around you, don't you? And if you don't, you're probably not a Christian. Honestly, because that's what the Holy Spirit inside of you is burning for. It's driving you to that. It's going to get you down. When people who should know better don't know better. And I think this is driving Paul a little bit. And and the Lord encourages him. And not only does he encourage him to say, stick into this, stay in this. You need endurance. You've got to stick with it. But he says, don't forget, i got a lot of people here that I'm going to save. Remember, and I'm going to come back to this later on, salvation doesn't belong to you or me. I may proclaim the gospel this morning, pastor may proclaim the gospel this morning, and somebody may get saved. That's awesome. But neither one of us would have saved any of them. It was Jesus Christ who does that. His movement, his conviction, his grace, it's being bestowed. I'm just the messenger. Paul's just the messenger. Jesus is reminding him, listen, man, you got to stay in this. I've got a lot of people here, and I already know their name, and they're mine, and I've got you here to do this work. Now, keep in mind, because of God's providence, if Paul had said, well, forget it. This is too hard, and I don't like the reviling. I'm out of here. It's not as if these people who were there that Jesus had, that many of them would be saved, that they wouldn't be saved. It'd just be another guy that we would be reading about in the book of Acts. You understand? It's somebody else is going to step up. Our job is to stay right in the middle of God's will. Don't don't let somebody else do your work, because the work's going to get done. The will of God is like a freight train. It'll either run you over or you get on board, but it's coming. And I want to be on board, and I know you want to be on board as well. What I love about this, and then we'll review this whole passage, notice what it says here in verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's the longest we know of him staying anywhere. A year and a half. I don't think the reviling stopped, do you? I doubt it. I don't think the attacks, verbal and physical potentially, although God promised he would be okay, he's going to survive it, I don't think they stopped making fun of him or yelling at him, but he hung in there because there were people there to be saved. So as we live in a world that is more and more and more at odds with our message, don't you suppose that Jesus has people here he's going to save in Plainfield, in Avon, in Indianapolis, in Indiana, in USA, in the world, wherever he takes you? I do. I believe that. So here's a little review of this. Number one, You need to proclaim the gospel. If people don't accept it, dust off your feet, move on. You don't necessarily have to talk the smack that Paul did here. Your blood be on your own heads. But if you feel like using that, go ahead. Just be gentle. I don't think I've ever used it. But listen, you can't force anybody. You can't force them. If they don't want to listen, that's okay. But then what do we see? Keep preaching. Keep preaching the gospel. Okay? And this is... This is sometimes, uh, you hear this, good bosses use this advice, have given this advice. Some of the, the, the greatest things have been accomplished just by showing up. Because you show up to work every day. Athletes do great things because they show up and practice and lift weights and get in shape every day. They put in the time. Sometimes just showing up, letting the Lord do the work through you, but being willing and being that open servant that is going to do that. 
Okay, so keep preaching the gospel as well as all that he's taught regarding godliness. We're going to talk about repentance a little later. When you struggle or doubt, as Paul certainly did here, okay, turn to the word. Turn to the word of God and remind yourself that God has many that he's going to save. And that's not up to us, that's up to him. So cool, so awesome. And then finally in this section, don't grow weary of doing good. I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but Galatians 6, as we've all seen before, and I've used this before, I've used this passage before, we don't want to grow weary of doing good. Now, in the context of Galatians 6, Paul's talking to, you know, this is the idea of, of the context is restoring a fellow believer who's fallen away. And that does happen. That certainly happens. That's the context of Galatians 6, that we want to kind of get alongside one another and encourage one another to do well. But there's more to it than that. It, it, we get weary just doing the work of the Lord. I, I know I do. I'm in the business of teaching teenagers about God's word. And I don't know, this may be a newsflash for you. They don't all believe it. They don't all believe it. And we've gone through a kind of a revolving door of, of high school teachers that uh, there's two of us. I teach junior high and high school. We have another teacher and, and we've had a lot. And it's, it's not because they're bad. It's because it's hard and it wears on you. And I think every single year I give a devotion this time of year to our teachers with this passage. Don't grow weary. I know it's hard because of the spiritual battle. It's not hard to be a teacher. It's not hard to show up and do your job. Everybody does that. The spiritual battle is real and you're waging it in this world against the enemy. Let's not grow weary of doing good, but in due season we'll reap. And the reaping here most certainly is seeing God's work actually take effect. I've mentioned my brother-in-law so many times, and I I hope that you're not getting tired of it. I know we all have family uh, that is dying and have have died, and, and we've all struggled with it. But he's just been a great example to me. It's been an example of him through his, his, his cancer, of being able to see God's work in action, the impact that it's had. And I think if we hang in there doing God's work, there's no guarantee that we're going to see it in the living years. There's no guarantee. But there is an absolute guarantee that if you stay in God's will, doing his work day to day, as we saw Paul do, as we saw Paul do in Corinth, that there is going to be a harvest that is reaped. Now, maybe we won't see that until eternity, but that's okay. I'm going to spend more time there than I am here anyway. So it's okay if it's not until then, but we don't want to give up. And then again, this isn't losing salvation. This is about continuing to do God's work. That's what this is about. So then when we have opportunity to let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So that's preaching the gospel. That's encouraging one another. Without question, that's what we're dealing with. Now, I took a section out of here the sin problem I addressed earlier, and and Lutzer does a good job of establishing this in the book if you're kind of following along with the book. Um, But I took it out for the sake of time. What I want to transition into is kind of the end of that chapter into this next, is keeping this proper perspective, keeping a proper perspective. So jump to page 240 in your book. This is our first quote of the day. I'll read this to you. This is uh, perspective matters. Perspective makes a difference. So let me read this too. If you're on page 240, you can see it yourself. The church's response of the perspective. Here's what it says. Social media has provided the fuel for hatred. You know that. False accusations. Perpetual outrage. We just had a guy walk up on an Oscar platform and slap somebody in the face for making a joke, if you recall. That's the world we live in today. Outrage. 
A single spark can light a firestorm of criticism and unrestrained anger. This is the reality that many churches will likely face in the coming years. As gender and sexual issues divide families, communities, and churches, some will begin to separate themselves from organized religion and reject Christianity as a whole. And by the way, that's okay. Numbers don't matter. God knows what he has. Remember, he knows his children. His sheep hear his voice. Congregations may thin out. It seems that the church is in the process of being pruned. Again, that's okay. While some will remain, others will walk away. And then further down in this paragraph, there are many who suffer silently, not intending to impose their ideology on others, but seeking hope and healing. We need to be there for them. So there are going to be people who struggle with some of these sins that we've addressed in the book, and they're looking for an answer. And although we oppose the sin that they may have been involved in, and, and we hate it just like God hates it, that we understand that this is what God's wrath is coming for. We also have to have the perspective that they're here to hear an answer from us. God's put us in their path. Our church, you individually, you're part of the church, to give them the hope that, that we have. Remembering why we're here, the church should be a safe place where they can share their struggles, ask questions, and grow. Now remember, this doesn't negate all the things we've already talked about. That we hold the truth. That we don't compromise. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Luther's saying. He's saying, but now we have an answer. It isn't just, I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong, I'm going to tell you what's right. So you remember what Scripture's good for. It's rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. We want to be there for both of those things. Here's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. You know this passage well. Here's why I bring this up. When we look at other people, we look at the lost, you should never, ever forget, and I should never, ever forget, humbly, that you once were that too, weren't you? Yeah, you were, and so was I. Once again, I'll give you another very controversial statement to you. It's not controversial, but it might hurt you. If you don't believe this, you're probably not amongst us. If you don't think this was ever you, I don't think you know him. This goes back to that what sin really is and the devastating effects of sin. But here's what we know of Ephesians 2, starting here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is you, this is me, this is every single believer in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We're going to hear that again today. The spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This does not give you escape, escape anywhere. There's nobody in here who can escape this passage. You don't have a clause or some sort of loophole that says, well, this isn't me, because I've been really good from the beginning. I've always been a Christian. My parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. I was raised in a Christian home, so I just kind of got grandfathered into the system. There are people who think that. You cannot think that, because that is not the situation. If you didn't understand the depths and the horribleness Remember, the scum that you really are, then you don't understand what Christ did. And by the way, if, if your sin isn't so bad, then why did he come and hang on that cross? Mm, that hurts. That hurts. All right, back to the text. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's an important line here. Like the rest of mankind, that you've been, you've been appointed, called, motivated, instructed, commanded to go to the rest of mankind. See, God knows who his children are, but you don't, do you? 
I'd be kind of nice if there was something flashing on the head. This one's going to receive it. Good soil, good soil. It's not like that. It isn't like that. So you just keep throwing that seed. And uh, maybe sometimes we throw it a little too hard and it bounces off. But we throw the seed and that's what we're called to do. Here's another quote from Lutzer. And I I think this is really important to kind of bring us back around to this whole theme that we've been talking about from the beginning. Uh, And I'll just give Pastor Kevin credit again as he was instructing me on what to do and how to approach this book properly. This kind of quote is really at the heart of the book, in my opinion. And I'm going to read it to you, but you'll remember Pastor Kevin talking about this even a few weeks ago. Let me emphasize that we must not see those who oppose us as our enemies. Page 242, if you're looking. But as people who need to be freed. I love that. At a time when those who shout the loudest win the argument, we must not lose our cool. How should we view people who have lost their way? We must see beyond their anger and pain and respect them as human beings, trying to find healing for their their inner conflicts. We need to view them as the Allies viewed France during World War II. I don't quite agree with this because, you know, nah, I won't talk about France. I'll leave France here. We got our, maybe there's people from France that are going to listen to this. We love you guys. You're awesome. Not as enemies, but as people who need to be liberated. And that is, that is exactly what the sinner is. Somebody who is blinded, who can't see it, who, who is lost and taken away by the enemy, and they need to be freed from the chains of sin, just like you did. Just like you did. Imagine if, if somebody didn't tell you the gospel that you never heard it, that Romans 10 never happened to you, that there was nobody who ever thought in their mind because the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I need to talk to that person, whether that be your mother, father, grandparent, friend, cousin, brother, sister, whoever talked to you. Imagine if they hadn't. Where would you be? Do you think that just by owning this book, by osmosis, you would have gotten it? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, it's possible you can open it up and see the gospel and and believed on it. No doubt about it. It's powerful. But what does it usually take? Another believer talking to a fallen, lost person with compassion in their hearts saying, I got an answer for you. I've got an answer for you. That's what we see. So 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is is kind of a good passage for this because it kind of leads us into the next section as well, although I've got a few verses in between. I think this is great when we think about Paul And I love the fact that this is the church of Corinth, that we left him in in Acts chapter 18. This is his second letter to them, unless there was one in between. And there's an interesting Greek phrase in here that's actually one word that we have two words for, don't lose heart or losing heart, but I'll get to that here in a second. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. That Greek word or Greek phrase, which is one Greek word, is simply meaning it, it's usually having to, having to do with combat. And it's abandoning and, and, and cowardly leaving the battle. That's what it means. And I think he's using this in, on purpose because we have a tendency to do that. Uh, and it isn't usually because of the sword. It's usually because of the words people use. But here's what he says. And I love this because I think there's two ways to look at this. Some com- commentaries have 2 Corinthians 4... Is Paul defending himself because people have accused him of false teaching? In other contexts, you can see this, and Paul is saying, listen, we've got to be careful about how we teach the word, and I think both are true. 
We don't want to become used car salesmen when we're talking about God's word. We are just proclaiming the truth. You can read this for yourself and see this in context, but it says this. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. I'm not trying to sell somebody something. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. I'm not changing it to make it look better for you or to make it look worse. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We let the word of God speak for itself. We don't add to it and we don't take away from it. It is powerful. The most powerful words that men have ever seen is right here. Why would we try to tamper with it? So I think that's the heart of this. Look at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. This goes right back to who saves. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, we've heard it before, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. There it is again. It's not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is really a key to this. It's not ourselves, back to this, it's not ourselves, it's Jesus who saves. This goes right back to his providence. It goes right back to his children, his sheep, not yours. Your job is just to keep this straight. You just keep it straight. How do you know it? You study it every day. You apply it every day. You become a living example of it. You become a, a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 would say. But you do that because you know it. This is a passage that gives us very clear understanding. Remember who saves. We don't. Remember how we do this. We proclaim the truth. Moving along here, Ephesians 2, the end of this, but God, rich in mercy. The second half of that, we ended in verse 3, but verse 4, remember what Christ does. This is so critical. When you proclaim the truth, remember what happens next. When you hear somebody and you see somebody and of course we never know when someone puts their faith in christ we can't see a heart we know after time and we see fruit and we see that consistency and that endurance and they're conquerors and they love the brotherhood we see those evidences but when you when you have this idea that so, it, the, the 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 switch has just been flipped and, and there's just suddenly there's just I, I get it i understand it what a cool experience and of course we never know for sure in those time but god being rich in mercy when this happens because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Remember some of those quotes that we just saw? They were dead. They're not our enemy. They're enchained. They're trapped. We want them to experience what we experienced. We want to present it to them as clear as we can so that they can see it. That doesn't mean they will. Doesn't mean that they will. Paul understood that, and that struggle, made him struggle too. But this is true. He's going to do this incredible thing. You get to be a part of it and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What an incredible thing that happened. Don't forget what he does so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We've already experienced this now, but imagine what's coming. We can't imagine it. It's so amazing. So we know that this is true. And here's how he ends his book. He says, wake up. So in case I put you to sleep, this is good timing for a slide that says, wake up, strengthen what remains. This comes from Revelation chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. We're only going to be there for a second. But let me give you this quote from Lutzer as we go into this last section and I kind of land the plane on the book. To wake up. There are some aspects of the culture we can embrace, but there is much that we must be opposed to. Our ability to discern what we can and cannot embrace is critical 
to the continuation of our witness as a church. My concern is that we are submitting to culture's most enticing temptations and justifying this in the name of compassion, love, and cultural relevance. We are willing to be deceived, and too often we are feeling self-righteously good about it. And we're going to come back to that Vody Bakum uh, quote that I mentioned that, uh, last week, and we'll see that, but he's talking about the same thing here. And this comes from Revelation 3. Here's what he says to the church in Sardis. I'm not going to spend much time here because Pastor Dave did a wonderful job on this. You can go back into the annals and see this, his week on the church of Sardis. And he says this, to the angel of the church of Sardis, write the words of him who have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is exactly what we've been seeing in Scripture. Alive versus dead. The Christians should be clearly alive. There should be something different about them. That fire should still be there, and they should be looking, and the context of Revelation 3 and Sardis is looking for those false teachers and calling them out because we're so alive. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You've got more to do. Endurance, remember. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief. This is not speaking of his return, by the way. And not know the hour that I come against you. That's discipline. That's what that's referencing. Here's what he says about this. And this is his commentary on Revelation 3, 1 through 3. So I'll let Lutzer, who's much smarter than I, give you the commentary on this. He says, what concerned Jesus about this church that its leaders had failed to notice. The answer isn't explicitly stated in the letter, but it's not too difficult for us to figure out what the, where the deception lay. This church that had the reputation of being alive was now dead because the people had submitted to the surrounding culture. They no longer saw the world of sin as an enemy. Now, it doesn't say that the world is their enemy. The world of sin is their enemy. They no longer thought that that was an issue. And what we see here is in Jude, this this is uh, very similar to Second Peter, by the way. And these books are, are in parallel with one another. The call to the believer is this. Beloved, that's you, if you're in Christ. Although I was very eager, and this, this letter from Jude, to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary, very similar to what we see here in, in Revelation 3, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, to fight for it, wage war. That's what that means, to wage war for the faith. That doesn't mean aggressively, that means standing on truth. It's always standing on the truth. That once for all delivered to the saints, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see this in 1 Timothy from Paul. We see this from Peter in 2 Peter 2. That same idea. Be careful of what's out there that's creeping into your congregations. Be careful about that. And the reason why we've got to be careful is because our message, remember the whole gospel, my last point in there, that it's all of it, it has to include repentance. Believing on Jesus as your Savior is a deep word. It's believing intellectually, of course, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that everything that was predicted about him, he did, that his work on the cross was complete and finished but when you do that you are surrendering all and you're turning from what you once were and you're turning directly to christ you're leaving that way and going this way it's part of it it's part of it and as a matter of fact we're called to this jesus in the book of luke four times talks about his message being a message of repentance his cousin john the baptist mentions it twice 
that you need to repent and turn from what you were doing. This is where our Vodibachum quote comes in. You can read this. It's very small, but I'm going to bring it in here. Very important. Perhaps you are unfamiliar with the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. Interestingly, this is the only commandment that receives universal acceptance in our culture. They love it. Moreover, it is the only commandment whose application must, most people are willing to insist upon. Speak on behalf of the 11th, and you are a true paragon of virtue. The specific application of the 11th commandment tends to apply to religious debate. The idea is that we should not confront people about their religious beliefs or sin. Unless, of course, those beliefs are traditional Protestant biblical beliefs. And you can do that. Then you're fair game, since those beliefs are inherent violations of the 11th commandment. We don't like to do it. Let's be honest. We simply don't like to confront people. In fact, some of us would rather be slapped in the face than have to tell people that their worldview is wrong. And isn't he telling the truth here? He is. He is. Sometimes we just think it's the worst thing in the world to oppose somebody. And yet that's exactly what you're called to. Notice what we see in Scripture. This is kind of a walk through the book of Acts. What does Peter say in his sermon? Repent, therefore, turn back from your sins that they may be blotted out. We see repentance in the original message, that it's right there at the beginning. Acts chapter 14, when Paul's speaking, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God in Athens. He's saying, turn and repent. What does Paul say when he's in front of Agrippa? His message is the gospel, but look at the highlighted yellow here. When he's talking to Agrippa about what he is plighted to do, what God's called him to do, he says, I immediately did it, but notice what his message is. When he's talking to the Gentiles about Jesus and the gospel, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Sounds just like John the Baptist. And that's before Christ came and started his ministry. Beginning and end, we see it. It's it's about repentance. It's about repentance. Let me get to one more quote here. And... um, And I think this will help us end end this lesson here because I think this is also critical with what we're talking about with respect to why we don't want to do this, why we're reluctant to do this, why we'd rather be slapped in the face. Remember that God himself has informed us that the likely response of our hearers, I'm often amused as people ask me for ways to do apologetics that are least likely to offend people. (laughs) We need to be aware that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We need to be reminded of of the most and most poignant words of Jesus ever spoke. If the world hates you, you know that it, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Attempting to be loved by the world often leads to compromise. As apologists... We do not wish to be more offensive than necessary. However, we know that there will be offense. We might as well offend with the gospel. We might as well offend with the gospel. It is the only thing that saves. Be willing to offend for the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this series. We thank you for the wisdom of these men that that, that have brought books to us like this, that have encouraged us, instructed us from your word what we need to be about, gentleness and respect, your desires for all people to come to a repentance. We know that. We know that you have yours out here that you're going to save, and it's our job to bring the gospel to them. I pray that we are all about Romans 10, that we are the feet that are bringing the good news, and those are blessed feet. I pray that we do this with gentleness and respect, but we do it with the understanding that we were once that too. So we have open arms when people come to us and are looking for answers. We have the answers. 
I pray that we hold to the truth. We tell people where they're going wrong, but then we show them the way to go right. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to do so this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.